Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, revolves around one character gaining the courage of removing her veil and revealing her face. It's a retelling of the pagan Cupid and Psyche myth told from the perspective of an old woman who writes about, who she writes an account against the gods whom she hates and accuses of unfairness. Oruwal is her name. Oruwal's younger sister, beautiful and innocent as she is, was handpicked by the gods as their favorite and courted by the god of love himself, Psyche. While Uruwal, scar-faced and ugly, hides behind a veil and lives her life in a fear of showing her face. Lest she be ridiculed and reminded of her sister's good fortune and her own disfigurement. The novel works at many layers, but the central metaphor being this theme of removing your veil, of letting your face be seen and of seeing the face of God. The central question of the book that Lewis poses for the reader is how can we see God face to face until, as the title puts it, until we have faces? Of course, for Lewis to see God face to face, our own faces have to be transfigured into the face of compassion and love. Gaining a face is at the heart of Lewis's work. And I would suggest that the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration with their own faces aflame with the glory of God are asking a question along these same lines. They're in the presence of the transfigured one whose face changed in appearance, as the text says. The disciples, as we've heard, went up the mountain with Jesus, and though they were sleepy or weighed down with a heavy sleep, they stuck with it, and they saw the glory. They're drawn up into the cloud where they saw Jesus' clothes turned blistering white, and the text says that his face was changed, and he began to talk about his departure. The word departure in the Greek is, is exodus. Jesus begins talking of his exodus, of his gruesome suffering and death, which will also be his liberation for his people. His clothing was white, radiant with the light of a thousand suns, and yet his face, his countenance changes. I imagine his face became serious as he talks about his death. And I imagine that he looked at his disciples with the eyes of an infinite compassion, a compassion that has just drawn the whole suffering world into himself and is for a brief moment feeling the intensity of it all. His face changed. They saw this, and they were terrified. The face, said one philosopher, is the soul of the body. The face shows who we are and what we value. We think we can hide our weakness, our infirmities, our angers, our betrayals, but our faces often tell our stories. It shows through physically. As Jean-Paul Sartre once affirmed, we create our own faces, and after age 40, what we are underneath 
our virtue and sin, begin to trump our genetic endowment in terms of what people see in our faces. Not sure if that's good news or bad. The glory and the misery, the struggle and the triumph, the joyful lightness and the crushed expectations, our faces change reflecting what we've made, it of, made of our lives and what our lives have made of us. Why did Jesus' face change? There are many reasons, but I suppose it's because he now considers his cross and the cause of it. Humanity's weakness and ignorance, our desires that are at war within ourself, our gullible acceptance of the mob spirit. His face changes because he sees the heart of suffering itself, humanity's rejection of relationship, especially with those who don't look like them. It's a compassion on his face, but I imagine it to be a piercing compassion, one that sees the truth of sin and folly and still chooses to love. Whenever we fall into sin, writes Julian of Norwich, and give up the remembrance of him and the protection of our own soul, then, then Christ alone takes care of the responsibility for us. And thus he stands sorrowing and mourning as he takes responsibility without blaming our shortcomings. Maybe that's why his face changed. Jesus' face changes as he stands in the company of Moses and Elijah, the two archetypal figures in the Old Testament for the law and the prophets. Remember Moses, whom we heard read this morning, who longed to see God's face and whose face shined with the radiance of God's glory. The psalmist says, show us your countenance, O Lord. But tied to this desire to see the Lord's face was a fear of seeing God's face. Who can stand in God's presence? The one before whom angels fear to tread. Angels encircling the throne hide their faces. There's a majesty to this presence that reminds us of our mortality and our death and our impermanence. The question for many in the Old Testament wasn't if people wanted to see God's face. The question was if they can survive it if they do. There's a fierceness, a holiness in God's face. And yet in Luke's gospel, when Jesus' face is described, it's always a face of compassion. He has compassion on the lawyer, on the crowds, on the woman who confesses her sin at Simon's house, and he will have compassion on those at the bottom of the mountain as he heals the boy who has been, who's sick and he hands him back to his father. This is a compassion that holds nothing back, but out of the fullness of its life draws near to the pain of the world. And when the disciples see the face, just like anyone would have done in the Old Testament, when they see the glory of the Lord, they're terrified. The disciples, after all, are like us. Their faces carry a host of stories and griefs and what-ifs. But here in the presence of the Lord, they see an unveiled compassion, willing and able to be God's beating heart in a broken world. Jesus' face changes, and it must, surely it did, terrify the disciples. Because to see with the eyes of this one is to discover our own defensive ways of relating to one another. In the face of this compassion, we, with the disciples, fall to our faces. Self-sufficiency, our pride, they're exposed as shallow and built on fear. 
But here's the good news. Jesus wants our faces to come alive like his. He wants us to have the face of of compassion. Let your face shine, he might say to us. God created you. God became flesh for you. And here in the transfiguration, you see that my face is pure compassion for you. There's nothing you can do to put a glare on the transfigured face of our Lord. And in the company of his compassion, we feel a summons to be compassionate ourselves. Why did the face of Christ change? I suppose there's a social and radical dimension to compassion as well. Just imagine a public official or public servant or celebrity doing something shameful, reproachful. Just imagine. (laughs) And imagine in the wake of it, after the intrigue and after the commentary has all died down, when all the bombs on the Twitter sphere have all landed, the church decided, while, yes, defending the oppressed, to, in the vein of Julian of Norwich's Christ, to weep for the sins of another. Instead of anger, to mourn human frailty, to mourn that sin, to mourn that sin has gained another foothold upon humanity made in God's image. The church as Christ's face of compassion. Because compassion in the name of Jesus sees with a clear eye that the sin of one is all of ours to bear. Why does his face change? His face changes so that our faces might change. So that we, like the disciples, might learn to see with his eyes. That our faces might reflect his. That we might gain the face of compassion. Perhaps our faces can't change after 40, but perhaps they can. It's not to say that we remove our lines or scars or worries or griefs. It's saying with Jesus, yes, there's suffering, yes, there's heartache, and yet I won't back away from it because the most important thing after all is not gaining a pretty, a charming, or an unaged face. The most important thing is to gain the face of compassion And to let your face be transformed in that light is to find yourself in the company of Christ with all his saints, transfigured in glory. Amen.